Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us right now is David Malpass. He is Mr. Trump's selection as World Bank president. He's come in under some controversy, and then he has had to focus on this horrific virus. He is a physicist from Colorado College. David, I want you to look right now at the inertial force of this ugly pandemic. How is your World Bank adapting to the momentum of this pandemic? Hi, hi, Tom uh, and John and Lisa. Um, the, so the adapt, the World Bank's doing okay. People are able to work from home. We've gotten a lot of programs out, over a hundred programs that are directly at the health emergency. The the problem is that developing countries are under immense pressure because of the global recession, the economic shutdown in the advanced countries, and the pandemic itself is still spreading uh, through countries. Uh, and they also entered this problem with a lot of debt already on their books. So those are the problems that we're trying to address uh, as we as the recession deepens. And then we hope finds the other side and we come out of it. In your distinguished career at Bear Stearns, and particularly, David, as you build out that world-best Latin American coverage at Bear Stearns, there was a mechanism for challenges in the third world, in the emerging markets. Are the mechanisms there right now, or do we just have to go to a debt suspension? I mean, can we use the processes in EM that we have available, or is this a new territory? I think we have to look at new territory because the debt itself has changed. In the 1980s, I was in the Reagan administration and there was a Latin debt crisis that had come from the petrodollar recycling. Uh, remember, the oil prices had been high and so the banks could, uh, uh, the, the, the banks had a lot of deposits and they would lend those to the developing world. And the problem was they didn't get paid back when oil prices went low. So it was a bank crisis because they they couldn't uh, the the bank deposits were a big portion of the capitalization of the banks or they were critical um, the, the, it was syndicated loans so this is quite different there's euro bonds involved uh, there so a, a lot more commercial uh, creditors than in in the past uh, and also the uh, the nature of the debt China China is a much bigger player in this they they weren't really a, a, mm -hmm. a creditor in the 1980s. So that those two changes mean you have to look at a different process. Uh, what we're doing is a suspension of, uh, of debt payments now. Uh, that, that, that's the official bilateral creditors, and we're encouraging the commercial creditors to stop taking payments from the poorest countries. Uh, that, that's a response to the crisis. Uh, David, you do not represent the Trump administration, but you were certainly selected by the president to take over this important important task at the World Bank. Great. He's going after other institutions, his own CDC. He's going after the World Health Organization. For all I know, he's going to go after the World Bank. How should your institution respond to a president who is not an internationalist? One correction, Tom, I wasn't selected by him. I was proposed by him to the world community. I was happy okay. to be 
elected by the, board, by the board and governors of the World Bank unanimously. And it's been going well in terms of uh, the changes that we're making at the World Bank that can help countries with growth, with better living standards, with all the things that we're, that we're trying to do, climate, education, health, uh, and on down the line. Poverty is a big part of the problem. Um, so if you if you boil it down, we want to have international cooperation among the various organizations, but the drive for growth has to come from individual countries. So that's what we're trying hard to do at the World Bank. Uh, our, we have country offices in almost all of the developing countries, and th those offices work with the governments to find out what will work best for the countries, and then we can help fund it with grants and loans. You know, the World Bank heavily is doing grants, which helps a lot with the net positive flow into the poorest countries. That's what we want others to do. You know, it, it's it's hard to say you're going to make a loan uh, to a country that's that's in extreme poverty, because where are they going to get the resources to pay it back? So we try to shift the balance toward grants. David, that seems to be a theme throughout the world, certainly in Europe, the idea of grants, not loans. We're also talking about debt reduction, and you have been on the record saying that you do think that there needs to be some debt reduction throughout the developing world. How big a haircut are you talking about? Well, we, we need to do the analysis of countries and what their debt sustainability levels are, how much debt can they support, and then reduce the amounts of debt to that. But right now, the bigger, the, the immediate problem is the need for transparency. One thing that's going on in the market is debt reschedulings and restructurings where people don't know what the terms are. Uh, and that means other creditors are reluctant to participate uh, if there's if there's not knowledge of the terms, uh, wh when I'm saying terms, for example, governments in the poorest countries are sometimes borrowing money and it's never disclosed how much they're supposed to pay. Then the government leaves and the people of the country are left with the burden of the debt. That's something that's a cycle that a debt cycle that we have to get out right. of because the politicians or the leaders can benefit from the immediate loan. But then it's very hard for the people of the country to. To repay that. David, in the news this weekend, Liz Sly's article in the Washington Post on Lebanon was heartbreaking. How can you affect assistance to a Lebanon that's being absolutely crushed right now? These are tough tough challenges. Lebanon had taken deposits into its banking system and paid a very high interest rate. Think, you know, I'll, I'll test your history, but remember the SNL crisis long ago in the U.S. You had this elevated interest rate that made it look good for depositors, but then when they began to withdraw, it created a banking crisis. Um, what we're doing in Lebanon is uh, trying to support uh, the social safety net. That means actual cash to actual people, individual people, rather than trying to run it through the government and the banking system, which is so problematic now. David, don't test Tom's history. We'll be here all day. He'll start <laughs> signing books. You know, you know, David, you know how this works. We'll be here for a long, long time. You know, as well as I do, that everybody wants to receive a grant, nobody wants to receive a loan. When you say there needs to be haircuts, who are you speaking to? 
the 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 official bilateral creditors right now and so that's uh that's uh institutions in the u.s government institutions that are lending heavily more than half of it now is china uh chinese institutions that have lent to these countries uh they they, they the, what they're doing right now is is putting the debt payments at the end of the term they're they're pushing it down the down the line rather than reducing it so the net present value is being preserved at some point you have to reduce the net present value in order to create light at the end of the tunnel for the poorest countries that's what we're that's what i've proposed uh, also the commercial creditors the g20s already asked them to do comparable treatment meaning uh at they they would be reducing the net present value of the of the uh of their loans or of what's owed to them we're talking about remember the poorest countries yeah so d given the pandemic it doesn't make much sense for the wealthier countries and creditors to get back all of their money from the poorest countries and the people in those countries we could just as well be talking about Europe, but we're talking about much, much poorer countries, David, of course. And you have a lot of empathy for what they're going through right now. And I can sense that. When you send this message to the Chinese Communist Party, how receptive are they? Yeah, I, they're, they're receptive. Pre President Xi has said he wants to fully participate and he wants all Chinese agencies to fully participate in the suspension initiative. Uh, then that gets into the details of what that means. So uh, that's why what I've tried to do in the G7 meetings last Monday, a week ago, and in the G20 on uh, Saturday is be very specific about the need for the transparency. I'll give you one example. Central banks have been making deposits into other central banks and not not labeling it a loan. So you make a, you know, I'll, I'll just put money in your bank account, but it's really still my money, but it's not a loan to you. It, that, that needs to have more transparency on that practice so that others, when they're lending or giving grants to these countries, know what the totality of the debt is. So a lot of the work that we're doing this month and next month, what the World Bank is, what, what I've had people doing is put on the websites all the information that we have and then invite more information. We can shine shine a lot of light on this and make progress. The, the reason it's so important is countries can then invite investment into their countries with the knowledge that it's, that it's transparent, that the investor, the new money coming in knows what it's getting. David Malpass, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Incredible insight and got to get you back on the program soon. David Malpass there, the World Bank president. Carsten Nickel, Teneo Intelligence Deputy Director of Research. Carsten, great to catch up with you. Just walk me through that. Have we got an agreement on size? And what does the discussion around strings attached sound like going into this evening? Yeah, it seems that we have made some progress on the size of the actual recovery fund with these $390 billion in grants being proposed there by Charles Michel, the council president. But as you just outlined, I think the question of kind of scrutiny, let's say, for, uh, you know, economic reforms on the ground, as well as the question of the rule of law when we're looking at the overall budget for Europe, that is obviously still very much in the open, and I think that's what we should be focusing on in the, in the coming hours. Dr. Nickel, there are, have been changes since World War II and how Europe does business, how Europe gets along. Is this one of those changes, or is that asking too much? 
Uh, I think uh, I think that's a good way of looking at it, to be to be honest, because this is politically transformative. What 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 leaders are trying to cobble together here. Let's make no mistake. In terms of the overall size of the money that we're looking at, it probably won't be enough. So we'll be back to 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 this point. What in a couple of months, in a in in a year or two from now. But I think the politically transformative moment is this idea of going to the, to the market together uh, as the European Union, showing solidarity and also applying greater scrutiny uh, for economic reforms in those, uh, in those member states that are receiving the funds. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the political importance of what's going on here right now. That seems to be the argument from market participants as well, Carsten, that it's not about size, it's about signal. And if this isn't enough, we've got a mechanism to come back and do it again. That's the takeaway. Overwhelmingly, that's the consensus. Carsten... Do you believe that's the case? Is there any reason to believe that this I, is just a one-off? No, no, I think that is the case um, uh, because, um, you know, setting precedent in the, in the process of European integration, if you look at it historically, um, uh, it has, has always been very important. That, of course, doesn't mean, and I think that's the warning sign, that doesn't mean that the next round and the next steps that are still ahead of us will happen without conflict, right? So it doesn't mean that we're getting a deal today that basically um, sorts everything out going forward. Um, the closer we integrate, um, uh, the more political conflict will play out on the European stage. And I think we're getting a first stage, uh, first taste of that um, already in these negotiations right now. I love the concept, Tom, politically transformative. Another way of saying, is it a Hamiltonian moment? And the question of the frugal four and how they really feel toward the southern states. Have there been any material concessions on the part of their attitude toward uh, some of the southern states? I'm talking about Italy and Spain that are transformative in these negotiations. Carson. I think what is transformative here is the fact that even from Sebastian Kurz, the Chancellor of Austria, Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, nobody has ever questioned the very idea of a recovery fund. That, to me, is the main, the main movement. We're fighting over, you know, 500 billion in grants, 390 billion in grants. We're fighting over the exact level of scrutiny and the governance mechanism to ensure that. That's all good. That's, that's all fine. But the, the very idea that in this exceptional situation, the north of Europe, that depends so heavily on the single market, has to show solidarity with the south, that has never really been questioned. And I think that, to me, is the, is the main change here. But, Carson, this is important. Is Brussels changed by this, or is it another ballet till the next meeting? Uh, I think the most important thing that's changing is member state politics, domestic politics in the member states. And we've seen that over the last five to ten years everywhere across Europe. We, we're usually focused on the bad news, the rise of populism and so on and so forth. But you've also seen, I mean, if you look at France, for instance, the emergence you know, of, a, of a staunchly pro-European leader like, like Macron, the change of heart that we've seen from Angela Merkel in Germany on the last meters of her chancellorship, that is, that is encouraging news. And so to me, the most important thing is, what happened, is what's happening in the past party systems of the most important member states. And there, indeed, things have been happening. Carson, I hear you. The debate is about the size of this. It's not about the concept. And just by the very nature of the conversation right now, that is progress for the Europeans. On a final question, though, about this evening, this has to be ratified at home. For Prime Minister Rutte, how hard is he going to be this evening when it comes to strings attached to the grants they'll hand out? Yeah, I think that will be that will be the, the, the key thing, of course, because he needs to be able to go home to the Netherlands and remember that we're going into an election year there, March 2021. 
um, and uh, he's under massive pressure, of course, from, from the populist far right at home. So he needs to be able to go home and say, we're not just putting money on the table, but we're actually gaining influence in the direction of better and more sustainable economic policies in the South. And if he can say that, then I think that's the pathway to a deal. Castor Nickel there to now Intelligence Deputy Director of Research. We're thrilled that Dr. Furman could join us uh, this morning. There's never been an Ec-10, whether you do it virtual or in class, Jason, this fall, that has the magnitude of the changes we're seeing. How will we come out of these magnitude of changes, the magnitude of fiscal policy, the magnitude of monetary intrusion into our system? Well, first of all, we'll come out a lot better if we have a big magnitude than if we don't have a big magnitude. All the evidence of the last experience we had was going early, going big. You don't regret that. Um, you never regret that. I think a second thing, Tom, is we have to admit we're just uncertain. We don't know the path this virus is going to take. We don't know, you know what the pace of the recovery is going to be. It's very different in different states. And you need to build that uncertainty into your policy, have it adjust automatically based on economic conditions. We have a labor economics, uh, Dr. Furman, that has moved from furlough to, I think, layoff to now outright firings. Give us the tone you see in the American labor economy in the coming months. Will there be a wave of terminations? Yeah, Tom, I think there's two downturns. One is the temporary layoff downturn. That's like a natural disaster, and that's been getting better quickly. There's a second downturn, though, which is people who have been fired, people whose businesses have gone bankrupt. That downturn is getting worse a little bit every month. The fact that we're still seeing 2 million people claiming unemployment insurance, including the pandemic unemployment insurance, every week, months after the shutdown, is very worrying about that second recession, which is sort of a normal recession and one that won't solve itself very quickly. Jason, given the fact that we do not seem to be having the virus fully under control in the United States, given the fact that we've seen record numbers of cases over the past few weeks, how concerned are you about also an accelerating wave of bankruptcies? Because some people are suggesting perhaps we've seen the peak when it comes to defaults. I'm, I'm worried about, I mean, I mean, look, first of all, Ultimately, bankruptcies are one of the functional things in the American economic system. We're better at bankruptcies than other countries. We're better at having companies operate within it. Um, that being said, if a lot of companies go bankrupt at once, if they don't have the financing to get through the bankruptcy and continue operating, that's what I'm really worried about. And so want this, you know, for some companies, maybe the airlines should go through bankruptcy. That might be the right way to handle um, their situation, but it would need to be done in an orderly and managed way. And yes, I think there's a lot more of them ahead of us. Jason, can you link the extension of the $600 of enhanced unemployment benefits with the corporate health of America, this idea that corporate profitability has been bolstered by those enhanced unemployment benefits? How much could that be threatened if there isn't an extension? A lot. You know, this is an amazing downturn where there's a huge hit to the U.S. economy, but consumer spending is right back where it was 12 months ago. Why is that? That's because disposable personal income 
is right back where it was, if not a little bit higher than it was 12 months ago. Why has income not fallen? Because of those unemployment insurance benefits. So um, this is a recession completely unlike the last one where you saw a huge decline um, in consumer spending. Here, we've had the V-shaped recovery in consumer spending. It's been supported by the unemployment benefits. Um, If they went away right now, it would be a big blow to the economy. Jason, what's so interesting here is if it's a natural disaster, and if we can be optimistic that there will be a cure, there will be a better America, there'll be a better health, et cetera, what portion of the slowdown is strictly exogenous and drifts away, or is any of it endogenous and we really have to worry about an effect, a permanent effect on the American economy? I'm worried that that natural disaster covers part of what we're seeing, but then you get the additional induced sort of normal recession that that causes. And, you know, I have in my head a model where we get back about half of what we lost or two-thirds of what we lost relatively quickly, and then the rest of it is is a slog that takes years um, to recover. So, so, you know, to six digits, I don't want to pin you down here, but how much stimulus do we need in the next couple weeks? We've got an operative number of one trillion, maybe one and a half trillion. We see a deficit out to four trillion. I mean, are those good numbers to you, or are we lowballing the need? You know, if you did a well-designed piece of legislation, I think about $1.5 trillion would be sufficient. If you throw in a bunch of nonsense, um, which is likely to happen in Congress, um, then you probably need you know, see, $2 John, trillion. You see how the professor from Harvard denigrates our politicians calling it a bunch of nonsense? That doesn't happen in the United Kingdom. Well, he's not in government anymore, so he doesn't have to be as diplomatic, <laughs> does he? Isn't that the cheat guide to all this? Once you leave, Tom, you can say whatever you nonsense. like. Jason, it's great um, to have you be, with us. Carry on. Uh, Oh, oh, just to be clear, by the way, I think the bulk of what's going to be in there is going to be good. Backpedaling. Some other stuff. Don't worry, Jason. If we quote you, we'll put that on the end. We promise. Just to wrap things up, Jason, the experience of the last 10 years, the nature of that particular crisis was so different to the nature of this one. Are there any lessons learned from a very shallow recovery in the previous 10 years for the recovery we're about to endure, the one in front of us now? There were some things we could have done. State and local governments continued to cut back. It took about half a point off growth. Need to make sure they continue to be supported. Um, last time the stimulus ended prematurely, need to continue it um, as long as it's needed. But you know, I think there may be some sort of speed limit to how quickly people can reconnect to jobs, even if you have a lot of demand. And so you know, we just need to be prepared for... Mm-hmm. You know, a lengthy recovery process, um, but, but do our best to speed it. One final question. You know the work of Jared Bernstein and others assisting Vice President Biden. Has Vice President Biden called upon you for analysis of his new economic policy? I'm certainly in touch with people in the Biden camp and, um, you know, think, think they have a lot of good ideas. You didn't tell him it was a bunch of nonsense. Uh, you know, like, like everything, <laughs> there are things I like, parts I like, parts I don't like. Jason, we'll let you go. It's always great to catch up with you. Jason Furman there of the Harvard Kennedy School. Daniel Ives, he's with Wedgebush Securities, and as you know, folks, has been quite optimistic. You know, it's buy the dip, Dan. It's all there is to it. Where do you buy a dip? How do you judge that as a fundamental analyst? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I fundamentally view that these stocks, in terms of FANG and tech, they're still a 20% plus move higher over the next six to nine months. It looks at the secular growth stories. And right now, if you look at cloud, e-commerce, and some other areas of tech, you're really seeing a lot of these growth stories accelerated by 12, 18 months. And in my opinion, the re-reading for tech is still in the middle innings. So, Dan, let's go exactly there to cloud computing. Is that the main driver of some of the gains to come that you're expecting? And, of course, this comes ahead of IBM reporting earnings after the bell, Microsoft Wednesday, uh, and then the week after with Google and Amazon and the rest. I think right now the poster child for cloud continues to be Nadella and Microsoft. And that's why I think that's a stock ultimately that's going to be $2 trillion as we go into to next year. You look what's happening in terms of growth. Only 30% of workloads are in the cloud today. That's going to 55% next two years, getting accelerated because of the COVID pandemic. You look at Microsoft, the AWS piece for Amazon. You look at GCP for Google. These are keys to some of the re-ratings on valuations of big tech, and it speaks to a broader theme. There's a lack of secular growth stories out there, and that's why, in my opinion, tech, the path's still much higher, you know, even despite some of these speed bumps. And, of course, the haters will continue to hate the rally. Dan, some people saying that Amazon's growth leaves it on a path to be bigger than the entire global retail sector combined. Question, is this a retail company or is this a cloud computing company, given where its profits are coming from? I mean, from a profits, it's obviously cloud. Uh, you know, of course, e-commerce and cloud, that's the one-two punch. And, and that's why what's made them so unique, and obviously it will be a focus next week or when they're in, in front of Congress. But I think if you look at the next leg of the story, and I think part of the re-rating, it's not just e-commerce. It is cloud in terms of on the AWS side. We believe a trillion dollars is going to be spent in cloud over the next decade. And that's why you're seeing not just Microsoft AWS, but the whole work from home space and a lot even cybersecurity names that continue to see all time yeah. highs here. Dan, I look at Apple, but I know they've each got their own story. Are these companies under-owned or over-owned by institutions? I think institutionally speaking, it's still a bit under-owned. Unbelievable. I think many have been skeptical of the rally. <clears throat> and I think when I look at Apple, I think that is the next leg. Because when you go into iPhone 12, what I still think is a super cycle, an extended one, I ultimately think from a re-rating perspective, that's something where bull case were at 525 on Apple. And I think institutionally, you're starting to start seeing more buy-in as you get through yeah, well, some of these quarters. Let's stop here. This is really important, Dan Ives. Explain to our audience the pressure to own a given stale, blue-chip company, et cetera, like Apple, whatever, the pressure to own it if you're an institution. How does that work on June 30, September 30, or 1231? Yeah, I mean, a lot, especially with so much waiting on the index, you underperform. And if you make the bet going against some of these names, which has been the wrong bet, ultimately, as a fund manager, you're trying to figure out what font you're using on your resume. So I think that's been the issue here is that the path continues to be higher. Even though the valuations are in a new stratosphere, it comes down to this is really a new age for technology. And that's why you're seeing the strong get stronger in, in terms of the FANG names. Strong gets stronger and a lot bigger. At what point does regulatory risk return? And I think that's the drum roll into next week when, when you have uh, 
appearing in front of Congress with Cook Bezos and the others. And I do think that drum roll starts to increase going into the fall. Right now, street viewing is background noise, but a lot of that's also going to be the political makeup. If you have a Biden presidency and a Democratic-controlled Senate, that starts to become more of a risk. Right now, a background risk because of fines. But I think next week we'll get a better sense in terms of how sharp teeth are in terms of pressing this issue. And Dan, we've heard about regulatory risk for a long time, and it hasn't come to the fore in any real policy, certainly not in the United States. Which company do you think is most susceptible to actual regulatory risk in the next year? Well, I think right now it, it, it is Amazon and Google. I mean, those are the ones front and center. And of course, Apple a bit on the App Store, but especially also what's happening in terms of the EU, because it's on both sides of the pond in terms of the threats. And I think that's also why preemptively you're going to see these CEOs get in front of Congress, because I think they will be spending a lot of time physically as well as virtually in the 202 area code over the next three to six months. Dan Ives, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.